Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Let me get this out of the way quickly because I'm dying to get changed into my normal clothes. It wasn't just an issue of age or weight or shape that kept me out of t-shirts. I'm a mod, basically, and I don't like to be seen improperly dressed. But for you, I am revealing the brand new Moach Graduate Merchandise, which Gayatri has designed and is marketing, and there'll be more details about how you can join this distinguished alumni of graduates of the Open University of the Airwaves. Not just t-shirts, polo shirts, hoodies, uh, caps, everything that you can see on the screen now and more can be yours for a song, relatively speaking. Let me turn to the big issues of the day. I'm sorry to say the big issue of the day in Britain, and it seems increasingly true also in the rest of the Anglosphere, is the passing, however sad, to those who knew her, although I'm reminded uh, of Keith Richards' comment when asked how he felt about the death of Princess Diana. He shrugged and said, I don't know, I never knew the chick. And most of the people now mourning the passing of Her Majesty the Queen, never knew her either. She had a long and luxurious life at public expense of 96 years. By all means, give thanks to the Lord for that. I surely would if I were to reach 96. Her mother reached 102 and her husband reached 100. So how long are you going to have Prince Charles for? Or should I say King Charles? Well, he might be your king. He isn't mine. I don't believe in kings. I kneel only before God, and my king is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. But the rest of you will have to get used to calling him King Charles after a mere 73 years of referring to him as Prince Charles. That nomenclature is going to get difficult, as you've just seen with me, I didn't mean to say Prince Charles, but I tell you this, it's going to be impossible for many people to get their tongue round, if you'll forgive the phrase, Queen Camilla. I wouldn't put my tongue anywhere near her, and I will never refer to her as Queen Camilla, but you will be forced to. It's amazing. We were told at the time that it would be morganatic, that there would be no title of queen, then it was queen consort, and now they are in the media, already before the actual queen is buried, referring to her as Queen Camilla. This is the woman, a married woman with several children, who conducted a decades-long adulterous affair 
with the then Prince Charles behind the back of Princess Diana and both of them cheating their spouses are now ensconced in Buckingham Palace side by side on a throne. Well, some of us have, us have kinder memories of Princess Diana than to go quietly into that good night. That's not the main reason, the main thing I've got against King Charles, of course. I've got many things against him. And we don't have time for me to adumbrate them all. But here's the most important one. I met the Queen twice. And at the end of the conversations, I had no idea what her political views were. And that is precisely the point. But you know already the political views of Prince Charles. You know that he is a quackery and greenery fanatic. You know that he is a friend of the World Economic Forum, a friend of Davos. You know that he's for net zero. You know that he's for talking to the trees and shivering in the freeze. Shivering in the freeze that will be caused to you but not him by the quackery and greenery of the abandonment of hard power energy for windmills and other quack solutions to the needs of an energy-hungry industrial economy in a world, in a country where most of the people are still poor and need their standard of living built up, dragged up, pushed up to the levels of the richest people in the richest countries in the world. It's all very well, you know, drawing up the drawbridge when you're in your castle and warm and fat and no longer in need of any of the basic entitlements of humanity. But what about the people outside on the other side of the moat who have not yet enjoyed a scintilla of the standard of living that you have. That's why I'm against greenery and quackery, but Charles is madly in love with it. And he won't be slow to tell you. Well, the Queen never imparted to me a single thought about political matters. Charles will never be done lecturing you from the bully pulpit of Buckingham Palace. He'll be ordering you what to wear, how to wear it, what to heat, what to eat, and what you should look forward to. Basically, the Klaus Schwab, his bosom buddy formula of you will own nothing, he will own plenty, but you will own nothing, but you will be happy. No thanks, I will not go into that good night. And the second most important reason why I'm against this ascension, as they call it, blasphemously, is that I think it is deeply demeaning to the British people and the people of those Commonwealth countries foolish enough to still have as their head of state somebody who lives thousands of miles away in a foreign country, it is deeply demeaning to us that we depend upon, in this case, the primogeniture 
because if Princess Anne, who would have been my pick for monarch, if we must have one, had been born before Charles, she couldn't have got the gig because she didn't have bollocks, although she's got far more bollocks, metaphorically speaking, than Charles, in my view. But to say that our head of state will be picked by the draw of which child is born first to the monarch before them is so medieval it is ridiculous, it is Ruritarian. It's a Danny Kay fantasy movie. It's Brigadoon on a British scale. Now, people say to me they don't want President Boris Johnson. They don't want President Tony Blair. Neither do I, although President George Galloway would be a distinct possibility. Who knows? I don't want an elected president like America or France. I want a president like Germany. Can any of you name the president of Germany? None of you can. Even some of you who are watching in Germany cannot tell me who the president of Germany is. I want somebody who will cut ribbons and wave benignly at people from the back of a limousine. That's enough. I don't want to have an executive president, but I will never, now that the Queen has gone, accede to the idea that a family, even if they were a model of Olympian virtue and accomplishment, and trust me, they are neither. Prince Andrew, anyone? Did you know that when Charles is out the country, Prince Andrew is going to be in charge? Lock up your daughters, especially if they're under age. I will not worship at the feet of any human, let alone humans of little moral or any kind of accomplishment. Now, let me move on, because Clive Myrie said that all these great events that are happening in the country and the world are of insignificance compared to the passing of a 96-year-old lady. That's what he said, Clive. Be ashamed of yourself. I've just seen a man who's posted his elderly mother's gas bill, which has gone from £220 per month, already high, to £1,250 per month. And the old lady, I have no doubt, is beside herself with worry. How can she pay £1,200 for a gas bill. By April, our partners will be paying half of their pension to keep the light on and keep the heating on in their homes. By April, our inflation will be 25% and rising. Levels that have never been seen in a generation in this country and seldom seen in the entire modern history of this country. Our unemployment rate will be numbered in the millions. And those that have a job will have experienced a massive cut in their living standards. So food banks will be booming. But they'll be the only business that's booming in Britain. Do the maths. If inflation's 25%, 
unless you get a 25% wage increase, you've had a wage cut. And of course, workers whose wages are falling don't have money to spend on the products and services that businesses in Britain are offering. And therefore, they too will have to start laying off workers. I'll tell you, we are about to enter a death spiral. And my goodness, we're doing so at a time when existential challenge to the country and our society is mirrored by a political class that you wouldn't send out for a loaf. You wouldn't send Charles out for a loaf. He wouldn't know how to buy it. You wouldn't send Liz Truss out for a loaf. She's thick as mince in a bottle. You wouldn't send Keir Starmer out for a loaf. And they are the power in our country. They are the political class. I'm reading at the moment. My good friend James uh, bought me a vintage edition of it, Their Finest Hour. The first paragraph written by Winston Churchill could not be written by the entire British political class. The first three paragraphs are in such wondrous language, showing such breadth of intellect and experience and achievement that the entire British political class together could not have penned them. When we were last under existential challenge, Churchill came forward with Mr. Attlee as number two and Mr. Bevin as number three. And I could go on. We had a political class that not only refused to surrender to the fascist beast at the Channel ports, but rallied this country in the face of an existential challenge to our entire existence. Keir Starmer, anybody? Liz Truss, anybody? Have you heard them? Have you read them? Though, interestingly, they virtually never write anything. Because on the written page, as long as it wasn't written by some spad, they would quickly be revealed to be the shallow-minded hypocrites and incompetence that they are. So we're in big trouble in our country. But spare a thought for the United States of America. They are about to issue perhaps scores of indictments against the former president, Donald Trump, for the simple reason that they know he's going to be re-elected as president again. Now I know, imagine, imagine a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Talk about the devil in the deep blue sea. Talk about Hobson's choice. But it's because they know that Trump will beat them they're about to issue a blizzard of indictments, criminal indictments, put them on trial in the hope that that will dent the midterm massacre that the Democrats are about otherwise to face in the midterm elections in just a few weeks from now and to slow and, if possible, stop the possibility of a second Trump 
term as president. So if you think that Liz Truss and Keir Starmer are a poor man's choice for political leadership, spare a thought for our friends in America, who at least got rid of monarchy, although I sometimes think they've never really fallen out of love with it. And we'll be talking to Farron Fronczek about how it's all playing in Peoria, or at least in Los Angeles and in New York City. The royal death and this 10 days of mourning has reached across the Anglosphere. We are blessed, did I say blessed? With seven current and former Prime Ministers of Canada in London right now. How lucky can you get? Well, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. The people of Canada can breathe more freely that Justin Trudeau ain't around, at least for the next few days. Let me set the poll. Will you be watching the Queen's funeral? And uh, on Twitter, it's A, yes, 35%. B, no, 65%. On YouTube, it's yes, 20%. No, 80%. And on Telegram, it's only 14% yes and 86% no. Now, that confirms to me that which I have been increasingly conscious of or at least suspecting over the last seven days or so, that despite the North Korean levels of state-mandated and choreographed and long-prepared grief, do you think that every electronic billboard in the entire country, including every bus stop in the entire country, suddenly miraculously sprouted portraits of Her Majesty without any preparation, of course, London Bridge's falling has been in preparation for many, many years, as you would expect for a lady of such advanced age. But despite, and don't forget the sneering and laughing at the North Koreans that is done by comics and comedians and politicians and journalists here about the widespread grief in North Korea and the mass choreography of that grief's expression when you watch the funeral tomorrow, as only around a third of our respondents will be doing. And we have, this poll has been out for many hours. 4,206 people have voted already, and you can vote right up to the end of the show. Farhan Fronchak is a good friend of mine, a former work colleague of mine before the station we worked on in America was rudely interrupted. But one day in one form or another, it will be back. And Farhan has never gone away. Farhan Balanced is her Twitter handle. And frankly, she's never off the screen. And neither should she be. She is one of the most effervescent voices of America. And she joins me now, Farhan. Uh, you're looking uh, effervescent, uh, if I may say so. <laughs> you are far and too kind, sir. <laughs> exactly what I expect. Uh, I made the point earlier that 
the, the Americans fought a revolution to be rid of uh, King George, but you've never really fallen out of love with the idea of monarchy. First of all, there's a great deal of interest in the British royals, uh, but you've got your own royal families. You've got the Trumps, you've got the Bushes, you've got the Bidens, you had the Clintons, the Kennedys. Uh, what is it about dynastic politics which still appeals in America, do you think? I think uh, the other ones that you had too were like the Carnegies, the Fords back in the day, you know, where they had these family dynasties and they're still around to this day. I think a lot of it though, George, why it's so interesting to us is because we don't have it where, you know, you're born and depending upon what lineage, you know, or, or who your grandfather is, you know, a lot of Americans will say like, oh, you know, royalty here in the United States, it's like the Kardashian family. And it's like, well, can you tell me who the Kardashians' great, 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 great grandfather was? No, you can't. So it's like this idea of having this long lineage of, of royalty is just so foreign to us. But the other thing that we do have as Americans, too, is we have the whole Meghan Markle debacle with Prince Harry. Uh, you know, her obviously being an American, a lot of Americans look at this as, you know, the uh, the drama that's that's unfolding around you know the palace and and what's going on around the bell tower of you know who's saying what when it comes to Meghan you know we saw yesterday Prince Harry was able to wear his military uniform when up to that point Americans you know were like yeah you know he's with Meghan Markle here he shouldn't be allowed to wear it versus the others saying no he honorably served he should be allowed to wear it so a lot of it is is Americans love drama. And with the Prince Harry Meghan debacle, people are just loving watching that drama unfold. It's like a Brazilian soap opera, uh, no doubt. Uh, where do people stand on Meghan Markle in the US? Most people in Britain are strongly against her. Some of them because she's a shade at least of black, uh, but others because of her personal conduct and background and the way she treated her own father and so on. Uh, but she's pretty unpopular here, at least in the public prints. I don't know what the public thinks. I'm not all that interested. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, George, because if you were to take Meghan Markle, let's say, and put her up, like, you know, for example, like in the White House or in like, you know, if you're going to compare it to the monarchy, to being in the United States, she would be what we would call like a whistleblower. She would be rejoiced. People would love her for saying, good for you. You're calling out racism. You're calling out all this stuff. But when it comes to the monarchy, people are like, how dare you? You should not be doing this. Um, and I think a lot of it, a lot of Americans look at her as drama, as a narcissist, as somebody who is completely out for themselves. Uh, and you do kind of see it a little bit as well with Harry, you know, with him wanting to step back and then coming to the United States. And they said that they wanted a private life, yet now everything that they do is in the public eye, especially, you know, doing interviews with Oprah and now with uh, Meghan Markle's new podcast, you know, talking about all this horrible, um, horribleness that she had to deal with in the royal family. And it's like, you do realize like your only job was to just get up, look pretty and like go to royal events and just kind of stand there. Right. Like, you know, and then the whole thing was is that she wanted to shake up the monarchy and it's like, OK, so you got them to not wear nylons anymore. Like, you know, it's, it's just Americans look at her as just kind of like a, a little selfish prima donna, to be honest. Well, I, I, I can see what they uh, are th saying uh, when they say that uh, the problem with what she has alleged is mm -hmm. that 
there's very little evidence of what she claimed. The one piece of evidence of an allegation that she made was that someone in the royal family asked what their children would look like. But as you know, Farhan, I have five mixed-race children. And I can assure you that everybody in my family and their mother's family all asked what are our children going to look like. It is not ipso facto racist to wonder what the children of a mixed-race couple are going to look like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and not even that. I mean, my, my mother's Italian and Irish. My father is Polish and Russian. My own family, you know, white and white. They were like, I wonder what they're going to look like. Will they look like more of her mother or her father? I mean, I feel like it's just kind of a common question that people are going to ask. But again, the fact that this was totally blasted um, via this Oprah interview when she said it, um, and, and not to mention, too, now Oprah's getting backlash for it, and she's trying to back away from the Harkles, as they call them. Um, so you just see a lot of it is, you know, the, the the way that, like, I guess the Gen Z generation would say is they're just looking for content. They're just looking for content that they can market themselves off of and that they can make money off of. And that was, frankly, one way to do it. Just call the royal family racist, because, frankly, I feel like that's what everybody's calling everybody these days, you know? Well, yes, and not just in the royal family. Uh, that's uh, undoubtedly true. More on more serious matters, mm -hmm. Farhan. Uh, Joe Biden is here. He, he drove his beast, as they call it, uh, through the streets of Tottenham in North London today. He was lucky to escape with his life, and I'm only talking about the gangs with machetes. Uh, he, uh, he had a cavalcade of dozens of uh, armored uh, vehicles, um, he was never the most uh, popular guy. He'll not be that popular when people see his cavalcade uh, going through London. Uh, he doesn't actually like Britain very much, not as much as his predecessor Trump seemed to. Uh, Trump was Scottish, uh, which at the time of writing is still in Britain. Uh, um, Biden, two centuries ago, was Irish. Uh, and uh, is mostly not British anymore, uh, with the rest on its way out the door in my lifetime, probably. So it, there's our indication that when the Northern Ireland Protocol issue explodes, as it looks like it's about to, a reopening of that Northern Ireland Protocol, with all its consequences, that Biden will be siding with the Irish Republic and the European Union, and Britain is going to feel sore about that. Tell us uh, if there's any perception in the U.S. that this issue is about to take off. You know, it's interesting because a lot of Americans, I can tell you the average American probably has no idea that this is even unfolding. I mean, many Americans you talk to, you know, they've heard of like the IRA and, you know, everything that was going on between Ireland and England. But a lot of them couldn't even really tell you exactly what the issue was or what they were fighting over. Um, but it's interesting that you bring up Biden's Irish roots. OK, so I did a little research and it's actually uh, pretty interesting. Biden is actually President Joe Biden. Actually, his roots trace back to England. Uh, his great, great, great grandfather was William Biden that was from 
Sussex County uh, and in England. And here it was, they, they show Americans up until about the 1980s, 1990s, uh, everyone was okay with saying and, and identifying that they were of British ancestry. And all of a sudden, in the 80s and 90s, you had this major drop-off where people stopped identifying as British. And, they, and you saw an uptick of people saying they were Irish and Scottish. Why? I don't know. Maybe there was some conflicts going on, or maybe the UK at that point was just a big no-no to be, you know, to have to say that you were from that area or your family traces back to that. But I find it interesting, though, that you know Biden really, you know, beefs up these Irish roots uh, <laughs> in, in a time when you know all of this is going down. No, I, I will say I have Irish roots myself, and with all of the stuff that's been going around with the Queen. Never before have I seen people coming out and being like, oh, I'm Irish and my family's Irish and, oh, you know, you know, God, God damn the queen and all this other stuff. And you're just like, you realize, like, we're all kind of from Europe, but, but now all of a sudden you identify as this big Irishman. I mean, it's, it's just with a lot of Americans, you just kind of have to look and laugh, especially I'm from the great city of Chicago where there's a very big Irish presence. And now all of a sudden all the Irish are up in arms over the queen and everybody, you know, bowing down for the quote, bowing down for the monarchy and watching the funeral and all this other stuff. It's, it's just kind of comical. But again, the part that was just so interesting is that, you know, there was this big drop off of people identifying, saying, you know, that they weren't British, they were more Irish and Scottish. And it's like, you know, okay, we're, we're, we're all from somewhere, you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of comical to me. Well, uh, that's breaking news, you know, Farhan. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. And it's a major hole in uh, Joe Biden's uh, genealogy mm -hmm. uh, because he does play the stage Irishman, although he's not averse uh, to uh, negatively stereotyping uh, Irish people. As uh, I saw one clip where he, he implied very clearly that Irish people were stupid, which is an ancient trope. I speak of someone whose mother is Irish. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know that, of course, it's very far from true, but it is or was at least a widely held a stereotype, a negative mm -hmm. one about Irish people. Uh, so Biden and others, I mean, at one stage, Farhan, you had to find an Irish uh, ancestor to run for uh, the presidency in the United States. Even Barack Obama found an <laughs> Irish, long lost Irish, uh, Irish relative, uh, although that must have been harder than it was for Biden and the others, but from Kennedy onwards, mm -hmm. because there were 30 million voters in America that identified as Irish Americans, it was obviously a potential vote winner to be an Irish American. And now we discover that Joe Biden, the leprechaun him, his turns out to be an Englishman. Who knew? Mm -hmm. Yeah, who knew? And you know what? It's it's very interesting, too, because you're finding out just there, there's a lot of things about Joe that Americans have problems with. You know, for example, last week, he has this big dinner party out in the White House lawn touting how wonderful the U.S. economy is. And it's never been this great in the past eight years. And he's having, you know, James Taylor sing on the lawn. 
as this is all happening, the Dow is plunging, <laughs> literally plunging before everybody's eyes as they're celebrating the economy. You know, then not even that, then you have it where, you know, the American media, yes, they are focused on the Queen's funeral and all that's happening. You know, she did reign for 70 years. She's met, you know, so many people from around the world and given her life to this service. Uh, but Americans here, though, uh, the polls are showing that they're really sick and tired of seeing everything about the queen because they realize like, look, I get it. It's great, but there's inflation happening. Gas prices are still high. Eggs are at the highest prices that we've ever seen. Uh, chicken, you know, grocery items, everything is, is up. The inflation is so high here. And it's like, why are we focusing on the queen when I can't even pay my gas pay for gas? So a lot of Americans, I feel like are a little bit, um, they're, they're, feel, they're feeling very gaslit by the Biden administration. So it's like, I don't care whether you're Irish or English. The fact that you're touting the economy is so great as the Dow is plunging. The fact that you're acting like the economy is so great when I still can't afford stuff. It's ridiculous and it's preposterous. Well, I tell you what, there's a lot of people in Britain have a, an identical view. Amongst the many nuggets in what you've said this evening, Farhan, for me personally, one of the more important was that uh, James Taylor is still alive and still <laughs> singing on the White House lawn. I bought Mudslide Slim in the 1970s and uh, really dug him uh, for quite a long time. Is he still a decent term? I mean, he, he sounded okay. Uh, he's, he's alive, like you said. He can still sing. Uh, but again, the American taxpayer, they weren't sitting there like, oh, wow, James Taylor. It was like, how much is that costing me? You know, <laughs> that, that, that's the consensus. Yeah, quite so. Probably not as much as it once did. Farron right. Fronchak, <laughs> thank you for joining us, as always, Thanks, on George. the mother of all talk shows. Much obliged uh, to you. Uh, the, uh, it says here the renowned independent journalist and political analyst. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I know he'll agree with me when I say he's not yet renowned, but let me say he will be remembered and renowned and in a very short period too. And you'll always remember, perhaps, that you first saw him here. Richard Medhurst is the brightest of all the commentators out there in the ether. And despite all efforts uh, to cancel him, he is still standing. Richard Medhurst, uh, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Now, you, I spoke to Farhan Fronchak uh, earlier about how the Americans are viewing the uh, 
funeral and the royal soap opera. How does it look to people in the Arab and wider Muslim world, would you say? Thanks for the lovely introduction, George. Well, um, I, ha I have to be a bit biased because knowing what Britain and, and, and France did in Syria, uh, Sykes-Picot Balfour Declaration, you know, which of course uh, gave away Palestine as if it were ours to give away in the first place. Um, I, I don't think people are, are shedding too many tears, uh, honestly, in, in uh, the Arab world because um, the crimes that we committed, uh, you know, the British Empire committed, and, and we, should, we should note that these were crimes that took place even under the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Now, of course, Sykes-Picot, this is before her time, but let's not forget about all the bloody crimes, India, Malaya, Iran, the list is endless. And so I don't think too many people will be shedding tears. Um, now, you know, on the, other, on, on the flip side, being British, um, <laughs> I, I, don't want, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Uh, I don't do that. And uh, I, I don't think there's anything funny about it, but I won't be shedding too many tears either because... Uh, I remember many months ago, and you've probably been saying this for much longer than that, but I remember something that you posted on Twitter where you said that we should have a referendum when the Queen passes away uh, on whether we should abolish the monarchy or not. And that always, stu you know, that always um, uh, uh, stuck in my mind, and uh, I think that it's a very pertinent thing that should take place. You know, it's one thing to mourn Queen Elizabeth. Uh, we should also recognize, however, that she was head of state when all these crimes occurred. Who the hell is King Charles? I mean, this guy is, uh, you know, I think he's the lowest approval rating out of all the members of the royal family. That's number one. Uh, I'm sure you, you have seen the videos as I did of him um, why, uh, pulling faces, shall we say, and grimaces at his aides because the pen... Snarling, I mean, yeah, he, he was snarling at his uh, yeah. staff, yeah. Truly, if he does that in public, what's he doing no. in private? And. Well, quite so. Uh, he's probably kicking them in, uh, in private, uh, like uh, they used to do in times uh, gone by. It, there's a couple of points I'd like to make in response to what you just said, Richard. Uh, it's first of all true uh, that when some of the crimes of empire were committed in Muslim countries, I'm thinking Yemen, for example, in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, I'm thinking uh, Malaya uh, during the insurgency where we were actually paying a bounty, not making this up, yeah. folks, for every severed head of a Malayan insurgent uh, that were brought to the British barracks. Uh, I'm thinking uh, of uh, the conflict in Kenya uh, where uh, concentration camps against uh, the Mau Mau uh, rebels. I remember as a child having my blood chilled by the word Mau Mau and atrocities and so on. But the Mau Mau were Kenyan people fighting for the rights of Kenyans to rule their own country and not to be ruled by a foreign empire. Uh, these all happened uh, under the uh, reign of Queen Elizabeth II. But it is important to note that by then, neither the king nor the queen of Britain 
made any of these decisions, they were made by the governments elected by the British people. So the blame has to be shared uh, by all of us, really, Richard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we, we are a constitutional monarchy, supposedly, and I, I know that the Queen is, is, is um, said to have, and, you know, legally is said to have a, a more of a ceremonial ro- uh, role than anything. Nevertheless, I, I still ask myself, why, why does every bill require royal assent? You know, is that, is that not participating in the legal process? That's just one, one point to it. But I, I would say that even though the blame must be shared equally amongst the government ministers, you know, the intelligence services, um, and not just the head of state, she, she is the figurehead. She does represent us. You know, that, that, that's why she goes and visits all these countries, right? I think she was, yeah, this was recorded where she was saying that she's visited, um, I think, 20 African countries. And this is a long time. It's probably, the list is probably longer than that. Why does she go to these countries? Because, well, many of them, you know, are former colonies. Um, it's, it's just like the French, like Charles de Gaulle, who wanted to maintain influence in Africa. And, and, and on top of that, she goes there to, main, to, to do the same thing, is to maintain British influence. And she goes there as our representative. So I, I, I agree with you completely that the blame has to be shared. But, um, you know, the, I'm, I'm just confused by all this mass hysteria right now that everyone is making her out to be some kind of angel. She's the figurehead. And if she's the figurehead she, and she's the head of state, you have to also recognize the ugly things that we did. Uh, under the British Empire, and are still doing, uh, you know, it, it, to this day, for this very minute, many things that are going on in secret, other things in the open. And so I, I, I don't understand this mass hysteria, everyone pretending like she's some completely, utterly innocent uh, 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 nan, and the royal family should just be worshipped, and we should give them all our money. I, I don't understand this. I really don't understand this. Well, uh, it's just as well she's being uh, buried in Westminster Abbey because there are people out there on the streets of London who, if she was going on the funeral pyre, would throw themselves on it. Uh, There is undoubtedly uh, hysteria, uh, and it is mass hysteria, but it's not everyone. I myself have spent a lot of time around people Uh, yesterday, the day before, and today. As you know, I'm involved in football, and so I've been with significant numbers of people in Birmingham and in Manchester and in Scotland over the last few days. I've got to tell you, I haven't yet to meet one person that's actually mourning. I've got to yet to meet one person who even raised the issue uh, with me. None of them showed any signs of giving a second thought to what in the public realm was apparently hegemonic, dominant narrative. And I think I would have. uh, I would have uh, spotted the signs of genuine public mourning. And I spotted none of those signs. Last word to you, Rich. I, I mean, it, this is, uh, once again, a, a proof how what, what the mainstream media do, what the mainstream media say is not always <laughs> what's happening in reality. Um, and when I said mass hysteria, I mean, certainly there, there, there are people who, who are, uh, you know, who, who would throw themselves on a fire like you just mentioned. But um, uh, the fact that we're expected to participate in it, I think, is insulting. Um, uh, you know, if you want to mourn the queen, that's, that's fine. 
but don't act like she's completely innocent. Don't pretend the royal family are innocent. Don't pretend that it's okay that King Charles, you know, I, I, who made this guy king? Who decided that he should be our king? I, I don't know. Uh, and, and, and don't whitewash and, 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 and forget the colonial crimes that took place when she was head of state. She was the figurehead. And again, the blame is not only on her, but nevertheless, we should remember that. And uh, we need to understand that if we're going to go around lecturing other countries, bombing them, invading them, sanctioning them in the name of democracy, and we ourselves do not even have a real democracy, and the Queen is just one, one of many issues, uh, it's hypocritical. It's very hypocritical, and it makes us look stupid on the world stage. <laughs> Richard, state-mandated mourning is meaningless mourning. It is monography that we have lived through, and it's actually the latest in a series uh, of events, the COVID uh, mass hysteria, the Ukrainian mass hysteria, right. the royal mass hysteria. It's almost as if they wanted us to get used to mass hysteria and mass no. psychosis. As always, I'm grateful for your presence. Give my regards to your mother, please. Uh, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon. That's Richard Medhurst the very bright young commentator. You can follow him on social media. He's broadcasting a lot. We expected him last week, and then we, and not for the first time, feared for the safety, even the life of Gonzalo Lira, who has been an indefatigable commentator from the front in the war in the Ukraine, from literally the streets of Ukraine as the shells and bombs fell all around him and all kinds of murky characters went looking for him and were encouraged to do so by some apparently eminent personages from uh, the rest of Europe, from places like Copenhagen, where uh, one eminent person uh, rejoiced that Gonzalo Lira, and I quote that person, will soon be on the run, a clear encouragement. Uh, of people to hunt him down. He's not just been hunted, he's been silenced. He's been taken off Twitter again, I think for the second time, though perhaps for the third. But he'll always find a welcome here on the mother of all talk shows because we believe that it is foolhardy as well as immoral not to hear the other point of view, especially when there's a war on. And so I'm very glad to say, finally, Gonzalo Lira is with us. Gonzalo, you gave us another uh, scare last week. We are so happy to see you safe and well. We pray for your safety, to be honest. Thank you. And we uh, look forward to what you have to say. Um, since we last spoke, uh, the, the boundary, if you like, or the, the lines on the map have been uh, seesawing back and forward. The supporters of uh, Zelensky were rejoicing just days ago about uh, Ukrainian breakthroughs and so on. They're not rejoicing now. Tell us how the war has ebbed and flowed from your standpoint? Well, from my standpoint, I'm in Kharkov, in the city of Kharkov. 
And uh, last, uh, when was it? September 9th, there was uh, simultaneous strikes by uh, the uh, Russian forces. They hit uh, like about a dozen targets all in one go. Uh, and then on Sunday, when we were supposed to speak, they uh, knocked out the lights and they did it again on Tuesday. It's sort of like, it's sort of like to prove a point, but there's also been some shrewd guessing that it might have been to shut down the electrical system in the country so as to slow down the movement of troops and materiel because uh, the train system works on electricity. And uh, it, it, they simply, the Zelensky regime does not have the gasoline necessary to move uh, all that equipment on the roads. And so uh, knocking out the electricity sort of like freezes a bit the, the, the movement of troops on the side of the Zelensky regime. But those are speculations. Nobody's really sure why uh, Russia uh, on uh, September 9th for the first time hit uh, targets within the city and hit them hard, uh, but just the one go. And then on Sunday last uh, and then Tuesday again, they knocked out the lights. Nobody's clear why, but I've said this before many times that um, the Italians are very good at food and the French are very good at fashion. And, but the Russians, they're good at war, whatsoever you might think of them. And uh, they don't make a move unless they have a clear plan, a clear priority. They, they never act impulsively. And so whatever movements they've been doing have been very deliberate. And that includes the offensives that have taken place over the last uh, few weeks that have been, quite frankly, an unmitigated disaster for the Zelensky regime because the losses are just, they are obscene at this point. There were essentially three offensives that took place in the last days of August and into September. This is the famed offensive that the Zelensky regime was saying that they were going to do, that they've been talking about it since April at least, or at least that's, I remember hearing that they were going to do it starting in April, that it would be an August offensive. And the days of August were sliding by and no offensive. And finally there was an offensive. Now the rumor, uh, that seems to be credible, is that uh, Zaluzny, who is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, was against these offensives because he wanted to husband the resources of the Zelensky regime um, uh, military and perhaps do an offensive next year, next spring. But Zelensky, for various reasons, especially to show off to his Western sponsors that the, the uh, war in Ukraine was still a viable business venture, uh, there was a big meeting on September 8th uh, with uh, his American sponsors. And so they launched this offensive and they were on three fronts. Uh, from the south, it was in Kherson. Then slightly to the east of Kherson was the Zaporozhye offensive. And then on the um, eastern edge of the, of the contact line, it was in the Kharkov region. I'm in the city of Kharkov and uh, the region that was in dispute is uh, approximately 40 kilometers from where I am. And so um, there were these three offensives and long story short, uh, insofar as Kherson offensive was concerned and Zaporozhye offensive, it's credibly estimated that over 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in each of those offensives. That is a total of 8,000 there. In terms of casualties, it's not known, but the, the typical figure is usually it's two to one to three to one. So an, in addition to those 8,000 men killed, likely an approximately 15,000 more troops uh, severely wounded, incapacitated. 
So that's a loss of at least 23,000 men. And in the Kharkov offensive, well, this has been much vaunted at the time that it happened. Both sides were a little bit hysterical. The Zelensky regime cheerleaders thought that this was a great victory, that this showed that the Russians could be beaten, blah, blah. And on the pro-Russian side, a lot of people also got hysterical and saying, oh, we're losing the war and this is a disaster and whatnot. But, you know, in any large confrontation like this, there are always going to be ebbs and flows. and There are always going to be setbacks and breakthroughs. Uh, what happened, though, it's becoming increasingly clear, and most serious commentators will agree with what I have to say, is that the, uh, uh, the Russians knew that this offensive in Kharkov was coming, as well as the ones in Kherson and Zaporozhye. And so far as Kherson and Zaporozhye, for all of the men that they threw, into battle, the front lines didn't move an inch, not as a practical matter. There is a, one particular salient that has been uh, created by the Zelensky regime forces, but uh, in Kiroy Rug, I, I have a hard time pronouncing the name of the city there, the Russians destroyed a dam uh, specifically in order to flood the river. This river, as it flooded, it wiped out the pontoon bridges and cut off the salient. And so now the salient doesn't have the possibility of resupply, reinforcements, or retreat. And it's slowly being destroyed right now as we speak. And there are credible estimates of between three and 7,000 men in that salient. And so it, 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 this will be in addition to the losses that I mentioned before. Now, insofar as the Kharkov offensive, the Russians knew that this was coming. The, that, Zaporoz, uh, that Kharkov uh, flank was being guarded by um, Rosgardia, who are basically uh, 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 border guards, territorial militia type. They're, they're not just second tier, but third tier uh, soldiers. They're not even supposed to be properly soldiers. They're more akin to military police. And those people and many of the civilians who had been assisting the Russians and evacuated uh, quite some time ago. If, uh, if it had been the Americans and the British, all yeah. of your electricity, power, and dams would have been destroyed in the first hours of the war. I'm not looking in the crystal ball about that. I'm looking at the record of the invasion attack on Iraq, for example. Uh, not just the big war in 2003, but the smaller war against Iraq in 1990, the first things that were incapacitated were the electricity supply, the sewage and water supply, things that contributed mightily to the death of large numbers of children through insanitary conditions, lack of clean water and so on. So yes. uh, the Russians waited six months to knock out your lights. We wouldn't have yeah, waited but, six hours uh, before yeah. uh, doing it. You want to respond? Come back. Yeah, uh, I'm back. We got cut off. Um, anyway, what I was saying is that the, the, um, the, they had a reason to do that. And what, whatsoever that reason might have been, it, it's obscure to us, but they have uh, this kind of attack of hitting any kind of civilian infrastructure is always done for a military reason. They destroyed the dam at Kiroi Rog. Uh, 
and they did it for a specific reason. It was not to flood the city or to prevent the citizens from getting uh, water, but rather so as to flood the river, which would cut off uh, a salient that has emerged in the uh, Kherson offensive. And so the Russians, they always have a clear plan and a clear military goal insofar as any attack that they stage. Now, insofar as the Kharkov offensive, uh, my colleague and friend, Alexander Mercurius said it best that the Russians knew that that offensive was coming. And there was a great deal of hysteria on both sides claiming that this was a great victory for Ukraine, a great loss for Russia. Looking at it after the fact, it was, in fact, a uh, very spectacular defeat because over 4,000 men were killed in the Kharkov offensive. M most of them, the vast majority of them, on the uh, Zelensky regime side. Uh, insofar as the Russians were concerned, they knew that this offensive was coming, and they decided that rather than defend this area that had no real military value, they would pull back um, to the river that was to the east of them, get behind that river uh, into fortified positions that they've already prepared, evacuate both the military personnel and the civilians, and let the Zelensky regime forces walk into this empty territory and pound them with artillery. Because you have to keep in mind that when you, you are in, in two defensive lines, uh, when you decide to attack, you have to get out from your defenses and expose yourself. And if you don't have um, air defense systems or aircraft that can support you, you're gonna be exposed to the artillery and the aircraft of your opposition, which is exactly what happened. And so it's estimated, credibly estimated, that in this offensive in Kharkov, the Russians lost just a, a couple of hundred people, including prisoners of war, whereas the Ukraine side suffered 4,000 dead and um, likely, but it's not known, but likely uh, an additional 8,000 to 10,000 wounded, incapacitated. So altogether, these three offenses in, in Kherson, in uh, Zaporozhye, and in Kharkov, they cost, credibly cost, the Zelensky regime some 12,000 men and an additional, possibly as high as an additional 24,000 casualties in terms of wounded, incapacitated. This is catastrophic. Even if you look at the most conservative figures, it's likely that they lost about 25,000 men. It can, it's going to be a range, and we'll never really know, but between 25,000 and 36,000 men. That's roughly the expected losses that they suffered. And they didn't gain anything except cow country in the Kharkov region. And so now... Now, you mentioned, area, uh, you mentioned sorry? something, uh, Gonzalo, that I was going to raise with you which is the tension that appears to be emerging between the military leadership in Kiev and uh, the political regime uh, of uh, Zelensky. Now, of course, uh, Poroshenko, the ex-president of Ukraine, who is under criminal indictment by Zelensky, has close ties to uh, the Ukrainian military and the release of the news. I've actually read the paper. That's how widely it's been released, uh, mm -hmm. which indicated the opposition of the military brass to these uh, quite clearly sponsor-sponsored uh, offensives uh, that were launched by Zelensky. The military brass were 
very clearly saying they did not want to do this. They wanted to yeah. wait until they had the weapons that could reach deep inside Russia, till they had the men and the materiel. It was Zelensky who drove these two highly expensive offensives. Mm -hmm. Does this, is this pregnant with political change in Kiev? Could we see a military coup in Kiev? That's a good question, and I can't possibly know, to tell you the truth, to be quite uh, frank and, and upfront about it. And frankly, nobody can really know. Uh, that, that kind of inside baseball kind of minutia of the political machinations between the various factions in Kiev, nobody can really know. And anybody who claims to really know is probably lying. Uh, because all the, the, that kind of palace intrigue, uh, you only find out about it long after the fact, long after the conflict is over. Uh, what is happening at this time, I don't think it's particularly productive to be very concerned about that. Um, because you're never really going to know. And so it, it, I, I'm very pragmatic in that, in that sense. I don't bother with that kind of uh, inside baseball issue because there is no way to credibly know. There are rumors that the military was very much against this, that Zaluzny wanted to wait until the spring of 2023 for any kind of serious offensive. But now that this offensive has happened, Rather than doing the sensible thing, which would have been, okay, we scored a victory, let's see about negotiating, uh, uh, negotiating a ceasefire with the Russians, they're doubling down because they're believing their own public relations. They're, they're believing their own baloney. And what they want to do is another offensive. Now, if the Zelensky regime keeps on having these uh, victorious offensives, they're going to wind up losing the whole war because no army can sustain this level of casualties. I mean, it, it, this is the key issue that the number of dead and wounded incapacitated is astronomical. You have to understand here, in these three offenses, uh, offensives rather, you lost, lost for sure, at least 10,000 men. This is for sure, for sure. And, and the, the likely number is closer to 12. And in terms of the wounded, You've got another 20,000 that you lost. Altogether, you're talking 30,000 men who are out of commission. That is the size of a decent-sized stadium. You cannot continue a, a, a war, a defensive war in this case, with those kinds of losses. But now they're doubling down because they're believing their own nonsense. They believe that they had this glorious victory in Kharkov because the propaganda has gotten away from them, and they're living in a kind of fantasy land. And, and which is really what the West is, what's happening in the West, because, you know, the, the West, they keep on going with these sanctions and they don't realize that in this winter, people are going to go cold, dark and hungry because of the sanctions, because they've so internalized their own propaganda. They don't realize that, that they have been lying to the public and now they have started to believe their own lies. They, they, they've lost mm -hmm. touch with reality. And I'm equating the Zelensky regime mm -hmm. with the European leadership. Because the Zelensky regime, as we all know, is a puppet of the West. And, and they're just driving themselves and the, and the country of Ukraine off a cliff. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I was deeply believing, disturbed. Believing, this, their, believing their own baloney, Gonzalo, yeah. is a phrase that will ring and live. But I'm very, very happy. I'm seldom as happy as I am now to have re-established contact with you.
May God protect you and that we talk again soon. Thanks for joining us. Chris Hedges is a former foreign editor of the New York Times uh, who reported from many a war zone. Since when he has become a prolific author, he's got a new book out right now, a wonderful broadcaster, a great thinker and analyst, and we'd be very lucky if he was in Foggy Bottom instead of Blinken Blinken, who is there wrecking the world and wrecking America's place in it. But we're always uh, very glad to welcome Chris Hedges here on the mother of all talk shows, which is, after all, Chris, an open university of the airwaves and a professor like you should be heard. Uh, bring us uh, up to date. I read in Newsweek just an hour or two ago uh, that in Newsweek, at least, there's a recognition that the vast majority of the world, they say 90%, is not with the United States on this war in Ukraine. That's quite serious when only yesterday you were the dominant hegemonic superpower, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think that that's probably long been true, uh, given the last 20 years in the Middle East. The United States has become like Israel, a kind of pariah nation uh, that's lost on most Americans, of course. And uh, this uh, proxy war, uh, part of the reason there's been such a iron control of the press in the United States uh, is that uh, I think the support for now 15 plus billion dollars worth of uh, quote unquote military assistance uh, and humanitarian assistance to the Ukraine uh, only is viable because most people couldn't find Ukraine on a map. Uh, and so you uh, have kind of this cartoonish version of Zelensky as the new Winston Churchill. Uh, people don't want to look too closely at Ukraine, which on the corruption index uh, ranks, of course, very highly. There was a CBS report not long ago that got yanked uh, because it... Uh, uh, estimated that only about 30% of the weapons that were being sent to Ukraine were actually being delivered. The rest were being siphoned off to warlords and uh, black marketeers. Uh, it, this has been confirmed in the media. There's no oversight of the weapons at all. Uh, any kind of abuse, war crimes that are carried out by Ukraine. I covered war for 20 years. I can tell you both sides lie and both sides are guilty of egregious human rights violations. That's been true in every conflict going all the way back to the wars in Central America. Uh, although I will have to say most of the crimes committed in countries like Nicaragua, Guatemala, and El Salvador were perpetrated by the military. It doesn't mean that there weren't any, although they were of a much uh, smaller nature and, and uh, proportionately uh, rather insignificant, but they were there and they should be reported. Uh, but there's all sorts of reports, butterfly bombs being used, uh, uh, Ukrainian quote-unquote collaborators with Russians. They may, of course, be culturally Russian and Russian-speaking, uh, being uh, executed or uh, certainly beaten up. I mean, all of this kind of stuff gets washed out, and it gets washed out for this reason, uh, that if people saw how messy this conflict was, uh, coupled, of course, with we're suffering from inflation, not quite what the UK is. I think you're over 10%, but we're up around 8 uh, rising fuel 
prices. I, I know in the UK, fuel prices are expected uh, to rise by 80% in October, but we're also seeing that. Uh, and meanwhile, all of these massive amounts of resource are, are being siphoned off to this proxy war. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that the, the kind of dirty game that Washington has been playing uh, is probably more evident to people outside the borders of the United States, but it is becoming evident now uh, in the United States itself. And of course, we've seen these protests in Vienna the other day, in Paris today, uh, going back to Prague, uh, where uh, people have had enough of pumping massive resources into the war industry when literally they're uh, having to choose between heating their homes and eating. Well, uh, of course, uh, governments are beginning to fall, Chris. Uh, the Swedish uh, so-called social democrats have just uh, fallen uh, to uh, parties uh, of the right, anti-globalist parties, uh, not keen on the EU, not keen on NATO, not keen on the economic war against Russia. The Italian government already fell, Italy a member of the G7, of course, it is overwhelmingly likely to elect a government uh, like the new Swedish government that is anti-EU, anti-globalist, uh, anti-NATO. Uh, the government of Bulgaria already fell. The government in the Czech Republic uh, may very well fall. Uh, the French government is having to uh, paddle very, very ferociously to stop the well-known predilection of French people to be on the street contesting when their living standards are being uh, threatened. Um, and here in Britain and in your country, the United States, it's a big ask to ask people to be cold, hungry, uh, poor, unemployed, uh, to decide uh, whether uh, Kopiansk should be in Russia or in Ukraine. Yeah, and I think that's why you've seen such fierce media control people who have questioned the war in ukraine whether it's scott ritter the former u.n inspector uh, patrick lawrence etc they've been removed uh from social media even for raising the question uh and uh i uh i think the ruling elites understand what we've already seen the head of uh, nato uh the head of the imf have been warning the last uh, few days about social unrest uh, in the winter, uh, not surprising, uh, given what are going to become food shortages for many people, rolling blackouts, and meanwhile, we're funneling staggering sums of money and resources into this absolutely futile conflict. And I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I covered the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania. Uh, we all uh, thought uh, naively that we were going to get a peace dividend, uh, NATO that had been rendered obsolete. NATO formed in 1949 to prevent Soviet expansion into Central and Eastern Europe had now become redundant, which shows you how naive we were. Uh, and, uh, and these are really the consequences. I'm not defending the invasion, but I don't think there's any argument that uh, Russia was baited. All of the great uh, Sovietologists, uh, George Kennan, everyone else understood uh, what would happen if uh, NATO expanded as it did uh, up to Russia's borders. Uh, and, and let's be clear, Ukraine became a de facto NATO country before this conflict began, certainly after 
2014. So, uh, yes, they've, once again, the ruling oligarchs have made a mess of it, uh, and uh, I think they're kind of scrambling. Uh, and these protests, especially if they become, a, we're, we're, we're on the cusp perhaps of a major rail strike, uh, I hope they do strike, uh, given what's been done to them, uh, the railroad workers, uh, and, and these kinds of strikes, uh, as history has shown, uh, can really bring down the billionaire class. And they're worried. Uh, they, they know the tinder is there. They've acknowledged that. What will ignite it? That's an unknown. I covered all sorts of uprisings. Uh, you can uh, see that people are being pushed to the brink. But what is that actual event that pushes them over? That's a mysterious forces. Even Lenin knew in Switzerland six weeks before the... Uh, a February Revolution, he made that famous speech that people his age, I think he was about 50 or something, probably wouldn't live to see it, and then six weeks later he's uh, at Finland Station. So we don't know. You never know. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, working men and women can, just can't be pushed much further, uh, and, and what's going to come in the next few weeks and months is going to be really rough. Well, uh, there are decades uh, when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades right. happen. That's right. and, uh, well, that's also Lenin. Right, so there, say, you go. <laughs> there is. Uh, it's also, of course, Lenin, uh, which leads me actually quite neatly onto my final question uh, to you. Um, how do we deal with the fact, people like you and me, uh, people of the left, that actually the main opposition to uh, war? NATO, neoliberalism, globalization is coming from the right and not the left. How do we handle that, Chris? Well, that's the bankruptcy of the left because we should be at the forefront of that and we should have been at the forefront of that a long time ago. Uh, watching the liberal, I hate to call them left, but the liberal class in the United States cheerlead the war in the Ukraine is nauseating. Uh, because of the cynicism behind it, as somebody who spent a lot of time in war, uh, the Ukrainians will bleed, their country will be destroyed. And for what? I mean, as even Henry Kissinger has said, I never thought I'd see the day where I was citing and agreeing with Kissinger. Uh, but even as Kissinger has said, there will have to be negotiations and there will have to be an exchange of land for peace. In fact, Kissinger said it should be done quickly uh, so this conflict doesn't spiral out of control. But I think that part of the rise of the all right is the bankruptcy of the left, and and uh, uh, and then I I think like you, George, that's something I mourn. Well, I'm extremely worried about it. It's true here, it's true there, where you are, and evidently it's true in Italy, it's true in Sweden, and so on. A rejection of the status quo uh, is more likely to come from the right than the left. The left is the status quo. Yeah, the left has been bought off, or the liberal class, uh, and then the real left, people like you and me, have been pushed uh, to the margins. In the United States also, it's the breaking of labor unions, which uh, really were the backbone of the militant left, uh, certainly up through the 1930s, and then you saw this war against unions. We, we have about 10% of uh, the workforce in the United States is actually unionized, and I think only about 6% uh, of that is in the private sector. So uh, that the fundamental weapon that the working class has to defend its interests and to stop permanent war is the strike. Uh, and certainly in the United States, uh, with the Taft-Hartley Act in particular, 1947, uh, which is, was this egregious anti-union act that is still law, 
they've defamed the power of the working class and the power of the left. Now we're just going to have to uh, embrace what will become wildcat strikes. Uh, they will be against uh, anti-labor legislation uh, that has been passed. I mean, that's our hope uh, in terms of a recovery of the left. Uh, but you're right. If, if we don't begin to stand up to these forces, uh, then we're going to cede territory to these neo-fascists with all of the frightening consequences that that entails. Now, I'm seeing rave reviews about your latest book. Tell us quickly about it. Well, it's another diatribe against war. <laughs> uh, it's called The Greatest Evil is War. And, and what it does, my first book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, was written out of my own personal experiences in war zones around the globe. Uh, this is really looking uh, more interviewing, uh, for instance, people in mortuary units, uh, uh, paraplegics from war wounds, uh, orphans, all of the detritus that comes, human detritus, that's perhaps not the right term, but uh, you know those who are cast aside by war and live with lifelong grief, lifelong injuries uh, to give you a kind of window into the institution of death that war is. War is not, as Clausewitz said, politics by other means. Uh, war is about the destruction of all systems that sustain life, uh, environmental, familial, uh, social, uh, right on down the line. That's what war does. Uh, and, uh, and so this is really a, a book uh, that allows you to see the consequences of, uh, of war on human beings. Well, I very much hope that it's widely bought and read. Uh, I myself will be one of your customers right after the show. Uh, Chris Hedges, thanks as always for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Much obliged uh, to you. Kevin, my correspondent uh, from earlier, uh, has returned to the lists. I've said to you recently that you were fooled by Diana's coyness and apparent beauty, but she hurt a lot of married suitors' wives. The rugby player, the doctor, the millionaire shopkeeper. Remember, beauty is only skin deep, and Charles can see the beauty that you cannot, says Kevin. But I do admire your spirit, good man. RT is the place for my sanity and truth. I watch it most days, along with free view, anything but Western media's propaganda. Lucky you, Kevin, I've no idea how to get RT. I would love to phone in, but my swearing is uncontrollable. How funny is that? And uh, uh, he goes on. I think it's him that's going on. Just to let you know, last time we spoke, you said you will pray for a socialist president in Colombia. Now, this is from someone else. Well, your prayers and mine have been heard by the Almighty. Colombia in South America has a socialist president. Well, indeed, and let's hope he's not the last of those. I have come to the last of this show, however, but I will be back on Wednesday at 10 p.m. UK time with the midweek Galloway show. Uh, which is a mom-and-pop television, no-budget television, just me and my good wife, Gayatri, just the two of us, and a camera and a single microphone. But it's still worth watching. Half a million people every week now are doing so. Otherwise, see you next week on Moths. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.